The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2015, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon was from Saturday, June 6th. Ninkasi Space Program, the mission to make space beer. Presented by Jamie Floyd, Ninkasi Brewing Company. My name is Bradley Latham. I'm the senior event manager with the Brewers Association. Uh, we are the small and independent trade organization for craft brewers across the nation. And so hopefully you've been having a wonderful time at Savor this evening. So we'd like to welcome you all tonight to our fun little salon. Uh, we'd like to thank Spiegelau, who is our sponsor of the room. And you each have a Spiegelau glass. Um, but tonight we're going to talk about space beer to boldly go to boldly brew what no brewer has brewed before. And so I'd like to introduce to you um, Mr. Jamie Floyd, uh, co-founder of Ninkasi Brewing Company of Eugene, Oregon. Thank you, Bradley. Anyway, as we work all this stuff out, there may not be sound. I was going to show you a couple of videos, but there might only be one because one of them is okay without it. The one that's here. I don't know if I should. Well, I guess it's fine. I can keep going. But uh, anyway, so um, what I wanted to do first, you have some beers in front of you and you have some food in front of you. So I want to address that first. And so the, f the first thing is, is I thought it would be wonderful to uh, share a completely different beer than the beer that we're going to taste later, which is Lux, which is our Hellas. Um, this is a beer that uh, uh, I've been brewing beers since I was 17 and professionally for the last 20 years. And um, my lifetime cold Goal career, career goal would be to uh, have a year-round lager, um, and it took uh, 18 years of my professional life to finally have a year-round lager. Last year, we actually had a number of lagers throughout the year, which actually allowed us to say that we had year-round lager, uh, but now we make a Hellas, and uh, as a year-round bottled product, um, and then make other lagers as a draft uh, element, and it's really wonderful for us to have actually the, the capacity um, to really care about lagers the proper way. Um, this beer is uh, aged for eight weeks uh, before served to the public. It's a 5% um, alcohol uh, and content, 20 IBUs. It's very light. And in this beer, we, we do a lot of crazy things. The ground control that's going to come around later is, is not... It's an imperial stout. It's got a bunch of funky stuff in it and all that stuff, and we'll get to that. But what we want to do is make a beer that would remind someone who's actually drank beer in Germany itself of what it's like to have Hellas. Because um, when I first started brewing, um, uh, or home brewing, um, there wasn't a lot of beer that was available that was locally made. I mean, there was, you know, Full Sail and Widmer and Red Hook and Sierra Nevada. Deschutes was not even bottling in our world back then. So I mostly drank imports where I could find them. And I fell in love with German lagers. So uh, Lux Hellas um, is a testament to that beer. It does employ both uh, U.S. and German hops uh, to make that beer happen um, and is meant to be very much in the tradition of that. Now, the Germans, or at least uh, the Bavarians, made this style to be consumed by the leader. So it is a quaffable beer at the very least. And what I love about this style is that it absolutely is delicious when it's cold and bubbly, and it's delicious when it's warm and flat, which is different than a lot of things. And it's a, a hard testament. Super hoppy IPAs are really, really tasty in their proper conditions, but they start losing carbonation and gain heat, 
and they get kind of, you know, a little flabby in your mouth, not really as exciting anymore, and that's kind of a crazy thing. So um, that was our, our goal and emphasis with that beer, um, and we're super excited to have it. What we want to do is to have a couple of cheeses with that as well so that you could taste that, uh, kind of do that. And what we have is the St. Mary's Gouda. That's in front of you, and that's obviously the more orangish one. And then we have the Marin Triple Cream. Um, and I think that you'll find that both of them have different elements that go really well with that. So you have the solidity of the Gouda um, and some of that flavor that goes really well with the Christmas of the beer. Um, but what's really nice with the Triple Cream, which I also like to do with really heavier beers as well, is that it kind of brightens up on the palate as well. So go ahead and take a little taste of that as we continue to work on this stuff. If it, uh, we're good to go. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll stop all that for now because that's uh, distracting and not what we're doing right now. So Boop. we'll get to that in a second. All right. So um, let, me take a, let me take a taste of this myself. Mm. And, and, and I'll just be real with this. I decided to go with these cheeses because they're harder for me to find than some of the other cheeses I might have had. So... I'm selfish. Tell us a little, a little bit about the name behind Lux. Well, Lux is, um, means light in German, so it's a, you know, a testament to what the, actually that beer is. So it's a light beer. I mean, it's not light in terms of like raw calories or you know, reduced calories or anything like that, but it's, it's just really talking about what light is on the palate uh, in terms of the mildness of that. We, we, what I love about such a... We're really known for really hoppy beers, so it's taken me most of also my Ninkasi life to, to get people to realize that we like things other than hops, even though we've been making stouts and a heavier, maltier beers since our inception. Um, so it's just kind of meant to be a testament to what is light. Wow, it's, it's awesome to have like a chunk of triple, triple cream right there, too. Yep, that Marin's really good. All right. So, um, real quick, does anyone have any questions about the Lux before I move on to the topic of the day? Because I'm sure you're all excited. Yes, Tony. How well is the Hella selling for you? You know what? It is growing incrementally all the time. You know, we live in the Pacific Northwest. We've had some wonderful breweries. Um, even, you know, 18 years ago, uh, Saxer that was putting out wonderful lagers back in the day, and I really didn't have the customer base for it. I'm sort of pushing this through, you know, in a way. It is a part of our flagship series. We have a flagship series. We don't believe, you know, Total Domination IPA makes up about 50% of what we make in any day, but we have a flagship series of beers, and we were really proud to elevate um, Lux, which was a part of our Prismatic Lager series originally into our flagship series as a beer that we could have all the time. So um, it's, it's incrementally growing. And um, what I love, I mean, I live in Oregon, and Oregon is a wonderful place in that we have 45, 40 to 45% craft consumption in our state. And um, much like myself, uh, consumers will go, and when they're, when they're making their consumer purchases, they'll have, you know, grab a couple six-packs of IPA, grab a couple six-packs of something lighter to take care of everybody, and those are welcome in the same cooler. And that's one of the things that's really awesome about where we're at in craft beer. And I know that that is spreading out across the United States. And um, we're really excited to be a part of that trend. 
um, to bring loggers to the United States. Um, one of the things that I think is important to answer your question, Tony, over the long course of the long term is that, you know, I think about imports as imports. What I have realized over the year, the feedback that I've gotten from lots of people that are not necessarily hopheads is that they fell in love with beer while they were serving in the army or were stationed in Germany. And that's where they decided that that's what real beer is. And so there's a great opportunity to reach out to people who fell in love with beer without hops, without malt, with all these things. And that's what beer is to them. And then they come back to the United States and then they're just kind of like hanging out and doing whatever they do. And so we work really hard to do that. And so that's a big part of it. And we're committed to the long-term growth. Um, uh, I'm a very patient person. So it took 18 years to get uh, eight-week lager out to the public. And I'll wait years to, before it really matters how, just how much that volume sales is for us. I'd like yes. to add, so if you have a question this evening, please just wait, raise your hand. I'll come up to you. The microphone, craftbeerradio.com is recording these sessions. So if you'd like to revisit this or any other salons that we're having this weekend, uh, you'll find them on craftbeer.com next week. Oh. Was the 18 years about getting the recipe right or, or having the market ready for the beer? Like, why so long? Actually, you know, it has more to do with the incredible fortune that we had with being a rapidly growing brewery. So uh, we've been around for nine years and we are at 100,000 barrels. Uh, when we were five years old, we reached 57,000 uh, barrels and we became the fastest growing brewery in the history of craft beer. Um, when you have a fermenter that could hold four beers in the time that it takes to have one, it's hard to make those decisions. And when, when we started, clearly, I told the people that I was working with, my, my, my partners in all this, at some point, we have to dedicate our beer to this process, dedicate our capacity to the ability to make these beers for real. And we've been making it. Batch eight of Ninkasi was a Hellas. Batch nine was a Moosher Dunkel. I have loved lagers for my whole life. I was making Hellas and... Dunkles and Doppelbox, all that at my tenure before that at Steelhead, and uh, it's been an important part of it. But um, sometimes in life you have to have patience, especially when the rest of the world is moving fast around you. So that's a quick answer to that. Did, did you want a quick question before we dive into ground control? Yeah, actually, I was about to touch on that. First of all, this is a delicious beer. Congratulations. Thank you. It's fantastic. So uh, I'm wondering just if you could touch a little more on that because uh, eight weeks is a long time to have a beer in a fermenter, especially at 100,000 barrels that you're brewing at. So uh, it had to have been a strategic decision on your part to say, okay, we're going to do this right. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, we, we built the infrastructure for a 300,000 barrel brewery. Um, we have the active head capacity of 160,000 barrel brewery and we have 100,000 barrels of brewing that we do. So to answer that question, you know, I mean, that's absolutely a part of it. We really, it's absolutely strategic. You have to make the decision that you're not going to make as much money out of a fermenter and all that. And it really takes that dedication to that. So what we had to do is make that decision. And, um, and it really comes down to more, especially at the price point you need to be as in, a, in, in that situation. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a... You know, it, it's a love. It's not any different than any of us are that are brewers. We got into it because we have passions and love. I'm just really patient. You know, it's a, you know, if I can be a part of what that is, then that's that's incredible for not just me but our entire staff. And we're very proud of making lagers as well as ales. And you know, we we keep going at it. You know, we haven't started really a sour beer program. We're going to do some kettle souring this year. 
but uh, we won't be um, involving pediococcus and other things into our brewery. I do have space set aside as a separate area in which I can send. We have a 50-barrel brew house and an 80-barrel brew house that are connected by a beer bridge. I do plan to have another beer bridge that comes off the 50 that will go into an area that will never come back to the rest of the plant. So it'll go across an alley and into a separate building in which they can be in stainless or in uh, wood, and then they can go into a cork and cage and then go out into the world and never go back. And uh, what I like to say is I'm patient like Bretomyces. So um, it's, not as, it's not as useful to our younger brewers who really want to do that. I had one of our younger brewers say, the next beer I want to make is a Flanders Red. And I'm like, well, we will make a Flanders Red together um, I was drinking Alexander Rodenbach when you were crawling, so you're going to have to wait a little while before we're going to get to that. But, I mean, that's just the way it is, and, and we're patient. I'll, I'll do one more question. I do want to start getting into yeah. space beer because we only have so much time. And it's okay. I mean, you can ask the question. It's good. I, I was just, I I just wondering, because you're known for hoppy beers, is that a pressure you get to, from people who drink your beer normally to always... That's what expectation. So it was hard to get the hell, the flux on because of that expectation of a hoppy beers. Well, you know, I mean, for us, I mean, we've always been making malty beers. People don't somehow you can make oatmeal stout and imperial stouts and then they can still say you're a hoppy brewery. But for sure, you know, we, we used to do a best in show for a homebrew competition in Oregon. That is the second oldest homebrew competition in the United States in Corvallis. And... Uh, the winner was a Bavarian Hefeweizen. It was a delicious beer, and we put it in a bottle, and we put it out there, and people opened it up, and they were like, what the hell is this? This is not Ninkasi. So we learned that, yeah, well, you know, it was a Bavarian Weiss, not a Hellas, but anyway. But, uh, so yeah, you have to wait, but we've developed that, and over the course of time, people actually trust us to make different styles of beer, and, I, and that's the thing. I'll be labeled the hoppy brewer forever, and that's fine. And I, it's not a part of my ego to care about that. But we're not talking about hops here tonight. So we're talking about space, space beer. beer. So why don't you give us a little little insight into the origins of this beer? Where where did this come from? So uh, about two years ago, I was doing uh, an event in Portland, Oregon, and um, uh, a mutual friend, uh, well, a friend of mine who works with a distributor that we work with in Portland, um, John. Uh, had a friend who is a part of an amateur rocket group enthusiasts, um, and they were working on the 10th anniversary, 10th anniversary of Brad making things fall down. No, um, uh, 10th anniversary of um, uh, um, of the first amateur rocket launch into space, and so they were not a part of a government funding situation, so looking for money. And our friend Chip was asking John, hey, what, what would it take? What, who could we talk to? We would like to partner with someone with beer, which ironically, Chip is actually a cider drinker, um, though he apologizes all the time for, which is fine, you know, because I used to make cider as well. But um, the reality is, is that basically we were introduced to each other, and um, uh, it, it's... John likes to tell this part of the story. He's seen me at a lot of events. It's the only time that I really couldn't be bothered by other people because I was geeking out so hard. And, and, and to give a little more perspective to that, I wanted to be an astronaut. And not just in those, the way that a little boy wants to be an astronaut and thinks about space. Like I used to really make drawings about space stations and really imagine myself being in space my whole life. And I was prepared to go into the Navy and be an officer and be a pilot and be risky enough to say, 
put me on top of an engine and launch me around and, and maybe eventually be in space. Instead, I ended up going to college, being a sociologist, and now owning a brewery. So I kind of took a different course of all that, but at the same time, my love of space and the nerdiness about it never ended. So, of course, John, knowing that, piqued that interest and allowed for me to really be involved with that, and I got to watch all these videos of these other rockets launching and really got to talk about that. Now, if you know anything about homebrewers and the nerdiness of this, I will tell you that amateur rocket enthusiasts are way more fringy than your nerdiest homebrewer that is still living in their mother's basement. These people are incredibly fringy, but at the same time, they want to giant ro launch rockets into space, so they have incredible egos. And so basically what was going on within their own organization was a little bit of uh, some onks and stuff. And so about seven months later, we were reapproached by the same group of people to see if we were interested in doing it. And um, fortunately for me, my business partner, Nikos, was, uh, is as nerdy as I am. And uh, we decided we wanted to be a part of it. Now, we do a lot of cool things. We love supporting awesome stuff that's a part of who we are as a culture, but we're also really nerdy. So we decided that what we wanted to do was be a part of this. So that is the introduction of that. A lot of people ask us, they're really focused on wanting the yeast to have been like mutated in some way and that you're gonna drink it and turn into the Hulk. And like, they wanna know what changed. Our goal was to actually launch yeast into space in a way that it would defy the gravitational force leaving the Earth that it would be suppressed by any radiation that's out there, the deep cold of space, and then the incredible heat coming back uh, to Earth. And that took a lot of work for us. And then uh, we took that challenge on on ourselves so that we would be closer to the mission, and it was an incredible experience for us because we were really very close to that. Um, at some point here, I'll show you uh, one of the documentaries that we had that's involved with that. Um, Fast forward a little bit, first rocket launch, um, we, we were using a 22-foot rocket with solid fuel going into space. These are a group of people. Um, basically, these rockets get used six times with the government, and then at that point, they're no longer usable as far as government money goes, and so that's how this amateur rocket launch happened. That rocket piece itself was pushed forward into the amateur hands, which is Saying that, these are really half amateur rocket scientists and also professional rocket scientists all at the same time. So, great group of people. Um, we built, we worked with a, a group in Portland that built us a 3D box that held 16 vials of yeast in it. Um, what we did uh, with that as well was to coordinate having dry ice put into the manifold for the re-entry uh, uh, from space uh, for the intense heat that was going on. Um, and then Chip, who was a part of Haperit, Hyperdyme, excuse me, um, Hyperdyme was the group that actually built the launching device because this was done, the first launch, rocket launch was done in what we call the Playa, which is where Burning Man happens in northern Nevada. It's also a place where uh, crazy rocket stuff goes on. Um, uh, so we put that piece together. The CSXT, which is the other part of it, which is the ones that are more oriented with the rockets, and you can see where maybe some of the intellectual split happened before we got involved. But uh, in any event, um, the, the two groups came together to present this whole piece, and uh, we were able to go out there and do it. First rocket launch was not successful. So first rocket launch, we were able to launch the rocket into space. 
Um, the FAA is a part of all rocket launches into space because there's satellites and all kinds of crazy stuff out there. And they were actually testing, um, uh, launching, or excuse me, tracking devices that uh, they were experimenting with. Two of the three failed at ignition, so there was only one ping for them to locate and not being able to triangu triangulate. Uh, it took them actually 28 days to find the rocket. What we built was roughly a 12 to 14 hour safety net for the yeast before we needed to get it. And uh, at that 12th hour, it was 108 degrees in the desert that day. And that's pretty much game over. So um, when we got the yeast back to our lab, we were actually able to find out that there were some yeast that was alive still, but it was not enough to actually propagate or anything that you would want to do with. So that was a heavy day for us. We're not really as accustomed to that level of failure. You know, my partner Nikos and I were like, we're hanging out with experts. This would all be great. And that's one of the things that was really important to us and what we know about space. A lot of us turn on our television and you look around and everything you see, there's people walking around on the board of a spaceship. They're talking to each other without any gear on themselves. They beam themselves places. They rock, you know, go onto other planets and stuff. And that's not where we're at yet. It's not what's going on in ISS. It's not what's going on on the space shuttle when it was still around. That's not where we're at yet. So it's important for us, but it gave us the opportunity to have a second mission. And basically with the second mission, we had, um, excuse me, um, with the second mission, uh, we had the opportunity of partnering with the people that actually built the rocket. And this is up aerospace and they're out of Colorado. Um, wonderful human beings that it's, they're dedicated to the idea of uh, defying gravity and launching stuff into space, which uh, if you ever get the opportunity to see something launch into space, that will change you a little bit. I've gotten a fortunate ability to watch lava fall out of a volcano into the ocean and watch their world get you know, created, and I've also watched human beings defy gravity, and both those things actually physically changed me in a way. Um, but the second launch... The second launch was done at Spaceport. Uh, Spaceport's in New Mexico. Uh, it was not affiliated with Elon Musk, but he leases out his space because he is doing anything he can to create enough money to send people to Mars, which is friggin' awesome. Um, but uh, so we got to go to New Mexico. My dad's side of the family is from Mexico, so it was a wonderful homecoming for me to get there and actually watch a second rocket launch into space. Um, the second time that happened, it fell back into White Sands Missile Range, and so the U.S. Army, in coalition with the Air Force, were able to watch that rocket the whole time. And we were not the only payload on that. So the second time, uh, NASA's on board. Uh, there were these Spanish scientists that were actually doing research of using sonar to control bubbles and liquids, ironically enough. And I think that, you know, what we found out about that is that Elon Musk would love for when people are looking back at planet Earth from a spaceship to be able to drink beer or champagne at the same time. So we've had an incredible amount of opportunities that were just met. So we get a lot of questions about the authenticity of what we were doing and whether this was just a marketing scheme or not. But I can guarantee to you that I am an absolute nerd. And the way that I look at it is that I always imagine myself to get a, a chance to go to space. And I am old enough and mature enough and maybe wise enough not to get on a you know, rocket right now uh, at my later age. But uh, any of the work that we can do to help propel that is really important. And, and, and remember that Ninkasi, or not remember, but let me say that Ninkasi is a Sumerian goddess of fermentation. And the Sumerians were not the first to make beer, but they invented written language. And uh, this is at a time in which human beings were nomadic and be, uh, 
became agrarian to grow barley uh, to make bread and beer with and settled down because they had potable water. And at that point, human being, groups of human beings were, you know, collecting together and they could not speak. So beer is incredibly important to us. If you look at history, almost all nomadic experiences has included beer. So the pilgrims had beer on their boats. You know, most, most vessels carry that. We hear India Pale Ale is all about boats and beer, all that stuff. So it's really important. So if we are a part of anything that helps bring beer and humanity into space, that is the real goal as far as I'm concerned. Um, what do I want to say next right now, Bradley? Well, let me ask you about this. So was it the same yeast strain you were using each time? And what was mm. that yeast? Thank you, Bradley. That's a perfect thing. First time that we had launched it up, we had 16 vials of yeast. We had seven different strains inside of it. Uh, the second time that we were able to go back, we reduced it down to three strains and six vials. Um, the second time that we brought it back, we were able to get four of the six vials back that were absolutely healthy. And two of them are house ale strain, which is a London ale strain. We also had the southern German lager strain that you were tasting initially. Um, not in this specific beer itself, um, as well as an alt strain that we use for a number of beers. So we actually have sent three yeast strains up into space and back continually. Um, what I think I want to do real quickly here is just show you this because this gives you a perspective, quick perspective of how awesome it's been. That's from our rocket by the way. So we had GoPros on our rocket. It's pretty quiet up front, so I don't know if this is going to go. Anyway, there is uh, some physical stuff that goes on up there. I'll... But basically, we, um, we're really excited about it. The, the very first time you see it, we, we were... In the playa, I've been to Burning Man before. I gotta say, it was absolutely amazing. That's my business partner, Nikos Ridge. This is all of us right before the rocket's gonna launch. It's James Book, our marketing director. So how long was it up there, Jamie? How long was the yeast up there? So basically, the entire mission is 15 to 18 minutes long. The yeast is in space about five to seven minutes. Um, that's the box for the uh, 3D box for the original one. Um, and uh, uh, so that, that's a big deal, too. We have been approached by some friends to see about maybe actually getting yeast into orbit. Um, I know that the ISS has actually fermented beer on itself at one point or another. I haven't seen anything about the actual recordings of that. There was also one brewery in, in North, uh, I mean, excuse me, New Mexico, a brew pub that actually got yeast on board and supposedly made a beer with it. So we are not trying to say that we are the only or the first people to ever do this, but we have our own, you know, sort of talos as far as that goes. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's a, a pretty exciting part of it as well. So there, we're not the only ones that think about space when we drink a beer, but, um, you know, we do what we can. Um, there we are right after it takes off. All right. So anyway, I don't want to keep watching that necessarily while I keep going. But uh, you can see that uh, all the people that work on this stuff, um, that's kind of one of the coolest things for us is that we actually got to, like, sticker the side of the rocket, which is a pretty amazing thing. And actually, this first rocket, Nikos and I actually purchased ourselves the first, like, oh, it's a little over a third of it. 
that actually return back to earth. And uh, then we, we actually have a metal shop that does all of our tap handles and metal work on site. We're very hands-on brewery. There's the rocket launch right there. Oh, this is the one you want to watch. Look at that action. I'm going to let this go for a second while I get some ground control. So, 3,580 miles per hour. Yeah, you can see I'm pretty happy there. And Nikos and I are like, I had actually, the day before that, just led the Oregon Country Fair, which is a cultural arts festival that we support there. It's the first time in probably 20 years that I left early. Actually, this is more important. It's about to separate. That's the playa down there below. Boom, separation, falling back to earth. And now it gets a little wonky. The first one was 73.4 miles away from the Earth. The uh, technical limit is 62 miles away from the Earth. Our second launch was 77.4 miles away from the Earth, um, or 73.1, excuse me. Highest amateur rocket ever launched into space for the first one. The second launch was actually the highest professional launch ever launched off the same size rocket as well. Um, it had a lighter payload than the last few that they had done beforehand, which is really convenient for us as far as those statistics go. Um, um, 5.5 Mach. That's pretty fast. It's pretty crazy stuff. We spent another eight hours driving across the desert looking for this. This is kind of some fun stuff. All these people are super fringy and crazy. Day of the launch, negative 108 degrees outside. Is that Mad Max? So, felt like it at the time, Bradley. I, I will tell you that. We so had how some, did you find it, though? Well, the first one was found actually with, with the help of a plane. Uh, or the first one, excuse me, was, help, was, was done with the help of a plane. Um, the second one was done by the Army. It was actually, they actually watched it the whole time from satellites and their positioning from uh, White Sands. And so the second one we got back in two and a half hours. Um, when we got it back, uh, the people that had packed the rocket, I was there while they were packing it. And the second time, they'd actually created it um, you know, with really high-quality insulation, the carrier device that would hold that and keep it actually braced from the cold as well. But there was a little bit of it. This is the first one in which, you know, there, that's the dry icing. That's not the same thing. But um, the, the second time, there was a little bit of that that was open, and so the dry ice actually touched all of that. And so the yeast was actually cryogenic. When we got it back, it was actually frozen. And what was awesome about it is that uh, the vials were not completely full, so as they expanded, it did not hurt the yeast at all. And so I was incredibly worried about it when it came back, but it was actually okay dokey. So uh, we learned a lot through the mission. The first time we got it back, we thought that it had worked, except that it had been there for, you know, uh, out in the desert for a month. This guy right there is shaking his hand right there. He is one of the absolute innovators of space in the world. So it was incredible uh, for us to be able to see that. You had a question real quick? Yeah, I thought that when yeast froze that it messes with the cell wall. Or I don't know, I'm not an expert or a scientist, but how did you manage to preserve it so that it didn't uh, you know, kill the yeast when it froze? Well, that, 
I, I can't answer that question because I wasn't on the ship to do it. So, um, but when it actually came back to Earth, we were uh, very happy to find out. That was my first thing. I thought maybe the first time the porridge was too hot and the second time the porridge was too cold. And we had actually spent a lot of money and probably not doing a third one, at least for a while. So uh, that was the thing. Four of the six vials were viable when we got it back home. They were a little stunned. It did take a while for us to regenerate it back up and actually be able to get it going, but it did absolutely do that. The first thing that we did is we took a batch of beer that we made off our system and we diverted 10 gallons of it off into uh, more of a homebrew batch size with the yeast that we had cropped up into that size and ratio. And then we, we took it through and let it ferment and did taste panels with it. And it was absolutely all right. And that was, uh, at least from a flavor panel standpoint, you know, we had it on the microscope and all that stuff. But when we were actually able to taste the beer, that's the most important part. Now, a lot of people want to taste that beer and then turn into the Hulk. For us, what was more important for our first try out there was to actually get it into space and back and be able to do that. So um, to the degree that we can do more and more and help with that, we'll, we'll be all about that. So you've told us some about the yeast. Uh, what else has gone into this beer? Thanks, Bradley. So what you have in front of you is uh, an imperial stout. Some people ask, like, well, what, what were you trying to do? Were you trying to cover up any weird flavors that were going on with the stout? No, absolutely, that was not it. It's just that we wanted to create a beer that was so exciting and flavorful that people would remember it, and a beer that people could age because it's a very commemorative beer um, and something that would be very collectible. So we wanted to make, we made a lot of imperial stouts. So let me pause this so it doesn't just keep going and going. Okay. Um, so we wanted to make a beer that was collectible, and so um, we actually made, we, we make other imperial stouts. We made a really aggressive uh, imperial stout in this case. There's even actually some peated malt in it, which I normally think of as the devil. Um, but I wanted to bring some locality to it, so we were also able to, yeah, that's great. Thanks, Bradley. That'll, that'll be great into this whole thing. Um, uh, I wanted to bring some flavor and some depth to it. So we used uh, Oregon-grown hazelnuts in it, as well as some cocoa nibs that we sourced through uh, uh, Theo uh, up in Seattle, although the chocolate itself is not from our country, and then um, uh, some star anise. And the star anise was there to balance and bring out some sweetness in the residual body of it. And uh, so basically, between the entire flavor elements, uh, we wanted to create a beer that was in incredibly delicious now and something that years from now would still be uh, memorable and delicious. So um, uh, it's awesome. I, we have the, uh, I forget what this is, the... Uh, Nathan Miller chocolate. Nathan Miller chocolate, which has some hazelnut inside of it as well. So it should be a, a perfect pairing with it as well. So Jamie, did you, did you try to do a batch without the species? to compare the two to see if you got any difference? We absolutely did. With all the beers that we make, we do test batches of everything. We actually did it on our 10-gallon pilot system, and then we also did it on the full 50-barrel system um, to make sure that the beer was good. That was not blended into the entire rest of the mix or anything to mutate the, uh, I shouldn't say mutate, but to change any of the flavor, flavor characteristics of the actual beer itself, but we wanted to make sure what it was ahead of time. And so we do a lot of experimentation. So there was a base beer. Um, there's hazelnuts in the mash, as well as in the bright tun. Uh, the cocoa nibs were put um, actually into the bright tank as well, as well as the star anise. Mostly I like to use alcohol as a solvent that pulls flavor out of things. 
Um, but with hazelnuts, it, it, was, it was fun to actually put it in the mash tun. And I know Bradley asked me about it. I think, I believe it was you earlier. Um, it did not affect the, the head retention later. So um, as fatty as nuts can be in that situation, it did not translate into uh, worse head retention. So moving forward, you, you've accomplished this. Do you have plans for the future? Well, it's been pretty amazing. And I'll, and I'll, I'll run through this really briefly. Since all this has started, the very first event we did with Ground Control, I was able to be able to present this beer at the 45th anniversary of the Apollo Space Mission Astronaut Reunion Dinner in San Diego, which is a pretty amazing thing. 23 astronauts telling about what it was like to be astronauts, which, of course, for me is incredible, including some of them who were actually trapped on the moon and still figured out a way to get out of the moon uh, with technology that was simpler than your cell phone. So um, they're pretty amazing people. Um, uh, and uh, then later on, we were also able to, um, we, we were asked by Google to, to present to uh, Google in Los Angeles. And after that, we did an event at Eureka Burger, which is uh, at Hawthorne Airport, which is where SpaceX and Tesla is located. Um, we did an event there afterwards, and uh, we got to go hang out, which is really urban Tatooine. So all these crazy space people that are hanging out after work, basically. I got to meet astronauts there that were on ISS as well as in, in Fluent Endeavor. Um, incredibly uh, special moment. Um, got a tour of SpaceX and got to, to go check out what is like Tony Stark's factory, basically. Um, absolutely amazing what they're doing there. They're launching rockets every 16 days into space uh, with the goal of using all the profits to send people to Mars and back, and that's a big deal for, to, uh, for Elon Musk, is that he wants people to come back from Mars, not just have a one-way ticket. Um, I mentioned earlier that we had uh, met the scientists in Spain who are using sonar to track bubbles and liquids, and they have said that they would love to use us for future grant writing uh, so that we may have access to that ability to help them and support them and the promise of maybe people actually being able to drink beer in space. Um, that's a very difficult task. Everything is consumed out of straws. So the idea that people would actually have liquid bubbles in, in, in any sort of liquid substance and be able to drink that is a pretty far stretch. Um, and then we were very recently reapproached by some of the people that we originally did it that have the next gumption of actually putting one of their rockets up into orbit and said that they would love to work with us to actually get yeast into orbit. So for those of us, uh, the people out there that are wondering what we have in the future, we're along for the ride. Um, and we'll do what we can. We don't have endless resources ourselves. We actually run a pretty tight brewery. Nikos and I don't feel incredibly good about spending hundreds of thousands of dollars or anything crazy like that. We spent $80,000, if you want to know, for the two rocket launches that we did. I mean, that's a rough number or whatever to be a part of these two programs. Um, and then uh, when we were able to buy the rocket for, uh, for our building, Nikos and I did that ourselves personally because we just didn't feel good about that. It's just not the culture that we have to spend money lavishly like that. So we're going to continue to do whatever we can um, to be in support of that. Um, it's been a, a wonderful and a marvelous experience for me um, and our entire staff. There was uh, not just me and Nikos that were at the rocket launches. We have a lot of staff that have been a part of it. Uh, and, it, you know, it really was a, an incredible uh, experience for, for everybody that was involved in it. Um, I don't know. Uh, I would say 
do yourself a favor and go try to see a rocket get launched into space, you know. If not, maybe go to Hawaii and watch lava flow in the ocean. That would be good. Got a question here over here. Um, two things. One, what were the two dates of the launches? And second, this is a hazy memory, and at the, this point in the evening, memories get pretty damn hazy. Something I remember reading in All About Beer about four years ago that some Japanese brewery managed to send yeast aboard the shuttle and bring it back down and brew something with it. Do you know anything about that? I actually believe that was malt. I don't, I don't think it was yeast that first time. I, I, I think it was actually malt. Uh, there was also been, um, I know one of the more published things is that there has been scotch sent to space, and so malt, Arkberg. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great question as far as that goes. The first launch was in July, and the second one was in October uh, of 2014. So, yeah, I would have to look at a calendar to tell you the date of that Sunday launch or that Monday launch for the, for the first one. So, Jamie, can you tell us how much of this beer was actually produced? We made uh, 400 and I think actual 35 barrels of beer for the first, for the first rendition of this. Um, so, we were able to propagate the yeast up and keep it going and nurture it all the way up. It's very, very, very difficult to make an imperial stout to begin with because you're, you're, you're hurting the yeast uh, as you go with alcohol content. Uh, we use a London Ale strain that is most similar to Fuller's. I like to say that because it's not really Fuller's yeast strain anymore, but uh, it's actually pretty good with alcohol content and something that we've used with high alcohol beers actually above 10%. Um, the yeast was a little stunned, if you will, on the way back down, so um, it took a lot of nurturing to get it back up there, but we were able to, um, to make it happen. So any reason you, you went with an imperial stout or stout in general as opposed to, you know, you said that you're the hoppy brewer? Um, well, because we really wanted it aged. You know, this is, uh, you know, already... Um, uh, we, were, we just had a conversation with the Smithsonian that would love for us to come back in September... Uh, and uh, do an event with them at the Air and Space Museum. There's a lunar eclipse at the end of September, and they would have a patio rooftop bar, and they would love to serve our beer as the world watches a lunar eclipse happens. Uh, that's incredibly, thank you, that's incredibly exciting for me. Um, and I have to adjust some travel plans for that for myself. But um, uh, So we wanted a beer that could be aged really well. We, we plan to make... Um, continue to make ground control. The next round of ground control for next year will be barrel aged. So we wanted to add value. This is a, you know, a, a $19 per 22 ounce bottle of beer. Uh, I didn't really talk about it or really show that part of it, but uh, the artwork on the, on the outward, uh, outside of that was done by Neil Williams, who is uh, an artist who does a gig art, who's uh, uh, helped people like Dave Matthews and uh, uh, Queens of the Stone Age and Carl Denson and a bunch of people do concert all the time. Actually, he just got hooked up with the Foo Fighters for their summer tour to do concert art for that. Um, and he just signed on with us as a resident artist for us. Uh, we actually, uh, he created a triptych um, uh, for this process. And so there's an incredible amount of artwork for it. And um, yeah, that's pretty cool, upside down. Um, but uh, uh, you know, so that's the thing. This is a top-to-bottom, uh, you know, process for us. It's not just a single moment. It involved our entire team, uh, and we're really, really, really excited about uh, 
uh, what's going on with this. Marvellous is a local band. We have a recording studio actually at our brewery. We help many, many bands do things. Uh, we did a five-song EP for the launch of the Dawn of the Red, which is one of the beers that's down downtown or down downstairs, downtown, downtown as well. Downtown, <laughs> shit's downtown. Um, uh, but uh, uh, we use our recording studio. Marbellus works with us. He's a hip hop artist. He was usually fr originally from Eugene. He's actually uh, very well known on the West Coast, and. Um, um, you know, when we end this, I'm just going to play that part of it because Neil Williams uh, posted a camera on top of the artwork while he drew it um, so that you could get time lapse of all of it. And then the music behind that is done in our recording studio with local musicians. Uh, a number of them are close friends of mine. And um, the sort of background noise and all that actually came from real NASA sounds that we use to scratch in and mix into the whole thing. So. For us, it's a total top-to-bottom experience the way that we do it all, so um, um, that's how we do, I guess. All right, let's get some questions from people. This. How many people can work in an office that has to tap right off of their office, right? We, What's that? I was just a comment about the, you guys have a whole full tap off of, at your office. That's <laughs> well, we have 47 taps in our administrative building. I know we did a, a video blog in which he could see behind us that in our rooftop bar, Nikos and I were plugged in and we had some taps in the background. So, uh, yeah, we're top to bottom that way as well. We really like to have a lot of fun. I will say they also have one of the rockets over the, the admin office as well. That's right. We t the, the first rocket we were able to purchase, and then we had our metal shop actually build the rest of the to re uh, rocket to replicate that, uh, and then suspended upon top of that, so it's kind of like a museum piece. Um, and then I also have to say, just real quickly, that Bradley here himself did a, a piece of art uh, that was a representation of ground control that is in our same area, absolutely, uh, sort of in more of an Australian dart or uh, dot art form. Um, but is a ground control release that, you know, brings tears to my eyes, actually, when I think about it, Bradley, because you're such a fucking sweetheart. Yeah, it makes me so happy. I can't believe he just rolled it after CBC and brought me it. We just, we just brought it with us. It's like this tall and this wide and super awesome. And yeah. Who else has got a question? I'm curious if you did uh, viability uh, tests or counts on the yeast uh, when it got back or... Testing you did just we we, at, we you know we have a full lab for that um, as far as the specific cell count and all that uh, you know with the first one there was like you know minimal you know yeast viability in the first one not enough to even try it the second time along you know I don't I don't know the specific cell count because I'm not the actual lab operator you know as far as that goes but it's not it's not anything that we would not publish in fact that's one of the things the goals that we would have we would absolutely love to share that yeast with the with the world in the future um, so uh, we have another local brewery called falling sky in our town um, Roger is a baker there he's an old friend of mine and he does random sourdough starts and stuff and so um, uh, he's gonna get some of the yeast the next time we prop it up and make sourdough starts for the other brewery so we're a really open and sharing brewery we'd love for other people to be able to take a look at it and you know, I, I, we would be happy to send it to you as well, so you could take a look at it. As to, you know, these are some wonderful yeast folks here who are asking us about that, so they've got some interest in that. But uh, we can talk about that later. But that's actually, it's not something that we're trying to hold into ourselves or anything like that. It's something that we would share with the world. Jamie, did you save any of it? Did you like 
cryogenically freeze in it? Well, we have a yeast bank. We have our own laboratory in yeast bank, and we propagate all our yeast strains up from ourselves. We've had friends uh, along my entire career that have helped us with that, and anytime we need a new yeast strain, we definitely go that way. Uh, but we have over 20, uh, I think, six yeast strains that we have in our yeast bank that we constantly regenerate and turn over into slants and keep going for, you know, ever and ever, ever on our side. And so um, we're fortunate enough to have been able to build, a, um, you know, a, a fortified lab experience in which we have a number of people on staff that are dedicated to the very specific biochemistry that we do. So that's kind of a part of, uh, um, you know, the... The wonderful thing it is to actually finally be there that way. Who else has a question? All right, so can I get a big round of applause from, from Mr. Jamie Floyd and Ground Control? This is quite a unique beer. It's quite tasty if you ask me. It's, it's very wonderful. So we thank you very much for being here. We appreciate Thanks, it. Got a, we've got a little, little bit of le beer left if you'd like to come sample a little gonna, or say hi to Jamie. I'm going to open this up and I'm going to put the video on as well because this song is super badass and you just should listen to it anyway. So we'll do that real quick too. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2015, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2015, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.